Hey everyone, welcome to the industry show. I'm your host Nitin Bajaj, and joining me today is Vikas Gupta. Vikas, welcome on the show. Um, thank you, Nitin. It's great to be here and, and to speak to you. And to anyone, everyone who's listening, happy to share what I can with your audience. Great to have you. So let's get started with who is Vikas. <laughs> Um, I'm Vikas Gupta. I'm founder and CEO of Wonder Workshop. Um, and um, I think one of the questions you asked me was what makes me me? And um, I would say, I think um, I've been in the tech space for the last 20 years, having started my career at Amazon. I grew up in India, uh, did my bachelor's and master's in computer science and, um, and having worked here now in tech companies like Amazon and Google. And for the last 10 years um, or so, I've been working on uh, Wonder Workshop, where uh, it, it really brings my personal passion of you know, helping kids be good at what they do and, and giving them tools to grow up as inventors in this country uh, in the century. And also combining it with uh, my, uh, my professional love for building things and, and bringing products to life. Um, and that's what we've been doing with a robots called Dash, Dot, and Q, who have been uh, helping kids learn to code at a young age. Um, something that uh, when we set out to do, we, wasn't, we weren't ourselves sure if, it, if we will be able to do so or if it was even going to be possible. Um, so I think that's, I would say, is, is who I am. Uh, and it's defined by the work I do. That's awesome. And we are looking forward to getting to know you a little more. Uh, tell us more about Wonder Workshop, how it got started. And you know, along this journey, where things are with employees, how many units you've sold, how many children uh, in, in their lives you have helped. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we started the company back in 2012. Um, I was at Google and at that time, and um, in 2011, I had my first child. My daughter was born. Um, and that's when I started thinking a lot more about children, especially um, you know, with my, with my daughter at that time, we were, you know, we had these devices at home and, and I was thinking and asking myself, if I give my daughter an iPad um, or a tablet or a computer, um, given the fact that it's always connected, she has access to un unlimited content through these devices. Is this device going to make her dumber or is it going to make her smarter? And as a parent, as an, as an entrepreneur, as, a, uh, as someone who is a responsible citizen, you know, how can we change and influence that? Um, that's what led me to founding Wonder Workshop with the goal that um, can we use these devices as tools for children to create and not merely consume? Um, and especially we were looking at helping children at a young age, as young as six, seven-year-old, five-year-old, um, use these devices to learn to code. Um, and these are very powerful devices. Um, so I think we knew that you know, this was something that was going to be important, especially in the 21st century. Um, so that's what the objective we founded the Wonder Workshop with. Um, and along the way, we figured out, you know, what's the best uh, manifestation of the product needs to be. And that's why we created Dash, uh, the robot, as the first uh, product. Um, now, seven years later, eight years later, we've now shipped more than 600,000 robots to customers around the world. Uh, we work with more than 25,000 elementary schools in the U.S. Uh, across more than 4,000 school districts. That's nearly one third of the school districts in the U.S. Um, and through these products, we've reached millions of children around the world. Uh, we host an annual robotics competition. Uh, we've been doing that once a year since 2015. 
Um, and last year we had uh, more, you know, nearly 5,000 teams from 91 countries uh, who participated uh, in the competition. Um, and, and what we've also been proud of is being able to bridge the gender gap where nearly half the participants in these competitions tend to be girls and girls always over-index in the winning teams. So we've always had teams of all girls as the winning teams in these competitions. And that's been um, really great to see. Um, so that's kind of has been the kind of, I would say the starting point for Wonder Workshop and, and where we are today. And we continue to, do, to work with uh, teachers and uh, educators all over the world um, to bring uh, new innovations to continue to take the story forward uh, with Wonder Workshop. Those are some phenomenal numbers and congratulations you. to you. Uh, you know, you started off with that, that question, how can you be a responsible parent? And you've done something really amazing out of that. Tell us a little more about, you know, when, when you had those thoughts as you were thinking through what can you do for your daughter, there must have been a lot of back and forth, a lot of feelings, emotions going through, especially as you know, the whole thought of taking that on as an entrepreneur, right? It's a whole different undertaking. So walk us through some of those thoughts and feelings you had at the time. Yeah. Um, so when my daughter was one year old, when I started Wonder Workshop, um, I think the first thought was um, that there was this big gap in the market where um, a lot of people were building um, there were there were products in the market that catered to children learning to code, but they were all geared towards a much older audience. They would be middle school and high school kids. Um, and when we talked to teachers and parents, there was this market, um, uh, I would say, uh, reception for they would both parents of young kids and teachers of young kids wanted a product that could actually work for the, with these children, but no one was building it. And I think that to me felt um, like, and if you don't tackle that problem, we'll be doing a great dis be doing a great disservice to these kids. So that was kind of, I felt, you know, was an important thing to do no matter what. Um, so, and we also felt that that was a, you know, a, from a business perspective, a market opportunity that if you could build the right product for these children and these teachers, then we could potentially carve out a pretty good space for ourselves. Um, and as a parent, I think I'd also knew that this would mean a significant amount of time away from, you know, as a dad, I had, you know, I had taken a whole year off nearly and I spent all that time with my daughter and I truly enjoy uh, spending all my time uh, with her uh, and my son now as well. Uh, but that was a, you know, tough decision in some ways, uh, but I felt that was an important decision. Um, for, uh, for one, I felt when my children grow up, seeing me work hard at something I love, um, I think I'd be modeling something for them to, to do something with their own lives, uh, how they would grow up to. Uh, and I would always be able to tell them that I did not settle for something um, because um, of a personal situation. And I kind of still embarked on solving the problem that I felt was worth solving. But at the same time, I also made commitments to myself and my family uh, where I will not compromise on the time I can give my children. As an example, Everyone in my company knows that uh, between five, five or six p.m. in the evening to about nine p.m., uh, I am completely offline every day, uh, and that time is dedicated to my kids. And that's been true 
uh, every single day since the company started. Um, and and uh, I still drop off my kids when, you know, before the pandemic times, I dropped off my kids every day to school um, and I would spend every evening with them. Uh, we would spend weekends with them. Um, and, and that's, I feel, uh, has allowed me to kind of strike a good balance between the time I want to give my kids and at the same time work on a product and a business and an opportunity that I, I feel passionate about. And I think in this case, it's, it's also kind of a self-serving prophecy here because they're also your customers. Yes, <laughs> yes. So I think you learn from children every day, right? So I think you can, um, I mean, I, I think my, my daughter was one and the product was for a five to six year old. So my daughter could use the product, you know, by the time she was five or six. And both my kids have actually been participating in the robotics competition for the last three years. So, um, so yes, it does come home. Uh, you know, you, you see the circle come, come complete and that my children take a lot of pride yes. in the fact that, you know, my, their dads built these robots, uh, their schoolmates and classmates use these products. Uh, they've been there, their off classes have come for an off, uh, for a class visit to our office. So the, they, they take a lot of pride in the work I do because it, it directly impacts their lives too. Yeah. And, and rightly so. And, I can only imagine, you know, the feeling that they have and it kind of comes back to you, I'm sure, to see that in their eyes and in the joy that they experience when they, when they can point that thing and say, you know, hey, I've had a part in that. <laughs> yes, for sure. And I think my daughter every once in a while would say, that is it true that I inspired you to, to build these robots? So, so that's an interesting thought process that I think she, that the kids go through. Nice. So, you know, when, when you thought of taking this time off and kind of stepping back from your career at Google, uh, you were obviously ready to be a parent. Were you ready to be an entrepreneur again? And this was 2012. Yeah. We were just kind of getting out of a recession. Yeah. So what, what was the thought process? What was going on in your mind? Yeah. Um, so when I was... Uh, when my daughter was born, I took some time off as you know paternity leave, uh, and then came back to Google, and um, and I was working on I was leading the consumer payments business at Google, um, but the moment I came back, I the, my first thought was, my heart's just not in the work I am doing right now. I, I felt there wasn't enough meaning in the work, uh, and I think my being a parent had a lot to do with it. Um, and then a few months later, I eventually decided, look, that's, if my heart's not here, I, I don't think it does um, me any you know, justice or the company any benefit by me just you know, being at the company. And I do want to step back. The other thought in my head also was that, you know, with this, thanks to the success I've had, um, I was able to take time off mm -hmm. and spend the time with my daughter. And I felt that the time that I could give my daughter will never come back. Uh, she will grow older. And this time that I could have given her, I wouldn't be able to give it to her again. Uh, so that's, with, you know, when, you, when I went through the thought process, I think the decision was not only obvious, it was very easy to make, which is, you know, that I do just, just want to be a full-time dad mm -hmm. for six months. And I don't want to think about anything else. And I had no thought about being an entrepreneur or, you know, that I'll start something uh, as a new company or I, I look for a job at some point. And I, all I wanted to focus on this, on this little human being uh, that I had. And I just wanted to spend time with her for six months. And we got the opportunity to travel around the world with her for those six months. Um, 
and I also felt that those six months in looking back have given me so much energy and just, you know, uh, you know I would say joy that I've been able to feed off of it uh, for many years since then. And I've been able to continue to work hard because that memory kind of, you know, rejuvenates you every once in a while. So true. You started off with hardware, which is not easy to figure out as is. And from what I know, you don't have any direct experience with hardware. I'm sure there must have been challenges and times when you said, you know, no, this is this is not working out. Walk us through some of those thoughts yeah. and feelings and experiences and memories. Yeah. Um, so when we started the company, the first thing was to base the product on uh, a lot of research. Um, so the quest was, what's the right product for children to learn to code effectively when they're young? And there was research we saw from MIT, from uh, Tufts University, which uh, demonstrated that the best way for children to learn would be with a physical tool, whether it's a robot or some other means. So it was obvious that you know if you wanted to succeed, at least from um, not necessarily from a business perspective, but from an impact perspective, then we had to figure out the right hardware product. So if I wanted to solve the problem, there was no shirking from the fact that uh, I had to build hardware. Mm -hmm. And then the quest was, you know, how do I embrace it? As you said, I did not have any prior background in building a hardware company or a hardware product. Uh, so the first thing with me was to make sure I bring on a team uh, that had the right experience, that complemented me on where my weaknesses were. Um, so that's why I had uh, two of my co-founders uh, were uh, directly, um, uh, who had worked on hardware, who had brought hardware products to life. They came from places like Frog Design and uh, Apple. And with them, once the team was together, then I felt a lot more confident that we can bring this product to market. And having said that, as you know, as a CEO for the company, every year um, was a has been a, a learning experience for me. And I think for the first first three to four years, big part of the learning experience was because of the fact that we're building hardware, and I had no experience doing it, and I still had to lead a team uh, to kind of you know do this you know, do this right. Uh, for the first year, we were bent from having done a Kickstarter project to shipping the product. We shipped 30,000 units in the first year uh, from our Kickstarter project. And then the next year after that was figuring out distribution. So, and then we, you know, next year after that, we ended up winning the Toy of the Year award and we got recommendations from Melinda Gates uh, that led to a really good Q4. Mm -hmm. But we struggled through you know, the whole year to figure out distribution. Then 2016, that the year after that became a really good year for us, where we, you know, grew in distribution and we were trying to spread our wings. So, and every year there were supply chain challenges. There were times I remember one month in 2016, I think, where all the robots that had been shipped from our factory, where we found uh, that half of the robots were not working because of a completely random um, change that happened uh, that that went undiscovered. And so we had to do this emergency. Uh, fix where we had to take units back from the customers, put supply chain and hold, and within a matter of four weeks, get a fix rolled out um, to the factories and get everything shipping again. So there have been so many moments of such, you know, near deaths that have come and gone. Um, and, and you're right, I think there are so many times that I felt like, you know, 
will I ever make it past it? You know, can I can I can I survive personally first of all, and can this company survive uh, as well? Um, but you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is mm. is something I believe in. So we are here. You know, it's eight years later, and you know, we uh, I'm sure there'll be more such challenges to come still. Um, but we continue to power through them. That's amazing, and I think sticking this back to the you know, those six months and that motivation and why you're doing this, I think makes it even more worthwhile when you face those challenges. Yes, I think, um, you know, it's, it's having a um, having that reservoir mm -hmm. to kind of dip into, um, I would say has been, has definitely kept me going. Let's talk about the Kickstarter. You broke several records mm -hmm. and this was, you know, the early days of Kickstarter. Yeah. What, what did it feel like when you saw those backers coming in and supporting your vision, mission, dream? What, what did it feel like? Um, I think it was nothing short of thrilling. I, I think, um, so we launched our crowdfunding campaign, if I remember right, on November 1st, um, and we went all the way to the end of November. It ran for about 30 days. Um, and you know when we were trying to raise money initially for the company, uh, I was often told by investors that this is not really a thing, you know, you know, who cares about coding for kids? This is not a market. And, and um, so a big part of it was, you know, I have this belief that this is important. And there are a lot more parents like me who believe this. There are a lot more teachers who want to do this. Um, so I had, we had to prove this. So a lot was at stake. I mean, if the campaign hadn't worked, we wouldn't have uh, had a company. We probably would have to wind things down. Uh, and I felt there was a lot of personal, you know, um, I would say ego at stake, if you want to call it that, that I had to, you know, see it through. But then, you know, when we launched the campaign, we had no idea how it's going to go. You know, these are, you know, you don't get, we, we ended up raising about $1.5 million and you can't do that from just friends and family, you know, putting in money uh, into buying the product. Um, we did start out with a bunch of friends and family, you know, to do the initial orders. Um, I think we were fortunate to really get good PR coverage. So, you know, a lot of uh, publications picked up the story and wrote about it on the, on the day of launch and they drove a lot of traffic to us. So I think the biggest thrill for us was when the first day we went from $0 to $125,000 of sales in the first year, for first day itself. And that, you know, gave us a lot of confidence um, and we were all high-fiving each other. And then literally a day later, the slows, you know, the sales completely trickled down and, you know, we weren't sure where it's going to go. And we knew that we had an internal milestone that we had to hit at least $750,000 of, you know, sales in order for us to be able to get, you know, a, a negotiate well with our manufacturing partners. Uh, we had publicly, we had set a goal for 250K. And then we had to hit that goal within three days for some of the backend payments to work through. And we literally scrambled to that goal. Like we barely made that goal and that was a huge relief. And then things picked up. I think there was follow-on stories, a uh, lot of word of mouth that spread. Um, and we gave a heart and soul into that campaign. Um, you know, we would support customers. We would meet their demands in some ways when they were asking for something. Um, and sometimes we went above and beyond in promising in, in which led to a very tough year after that. But we, you know, made good on our, all of our promises uh, to our customers. So it, it was a month of intense activity. Mm -hmm. And I remember every time we would cross a milestone, uh, we would take screenshots of, of our website 
and we'll send it around to each other. So even today I have screenshots of us crossing half a million mark and a 1 million mark and then the end goal. Um, and so much went into tiny little details, which is the messaging and you know, the video, uh, the, the screenshot on the video and when the customers come in, what do they see? How do we relate it back to the customers? Uh, the pricing, um, which are all small things. And in the end, I would say they are the ones, that's the one that contributed to uh, us being able to hit the goal that we did. That's such an amazing story. And I can only imagine the, the high fives and you know, the, the excitement, <laughs> but also the fear of you know, what if. And, and yeah. now that this is real, are we going to be able to deliver on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the biggest part, which is like right now we're all celebrating you know, the orders, pre-orders coming in. Then the real work starts, right? And then the day after the campaign was probably one of the most, you know, what have we done kind of a moment? You know, what have we, what have we signed up for? That is so cool. So, uh, you know, you, you talked about investors not signing up. And now I believe, you know, you're, you've raised $40 million, mm -hmm. close to that. So that's testament to the ability and what your team has been able to pull together. Yeah, I think we've been fortunate to have some really amazing investors over the years. Uh, I think when we first started, it definitely wasn't, you know, investors uh, were shy. But I think the space has evolved significantly since the day we started. We were, we were one of the first ones, if not the first ones, to bring uh, to life such a story. Uh, I think they were uh, the organization called Code.org had just launched six months before us. Uh, so the timing worked out well in that sense. But uh, we were the first product that truly brought this vision to life that young children can learn to code and the robot is the best way to do so. And here's the platform. Uh, and we had to innovate so many ways along the way, which is, you know, we um, how can the programming be done in real time so a child can see the feedback uh, happen. So we could only do that because of Bluetooth 2.0. Mm -hmm. And that was on very, very few devices at that time. So we made that bit. Uh, we made kind of, you know, how do we create content? How do we reimagine programming so that a child that young does not get confused by all the different things going on on the screen? Uh, how do you take away the notions of a syntax and bring the concepts to play? Uh, how do you create a programming interface that really works for robots and gives kids this vision of what they can do? How do you build a community online? How do you let kids share their programs mm -hmm. and yet keep, their, their data private, you know, so you never reveal any information about the child. So all of those things have been things that we've innovated on over the years. Um, and we've stayed ahead of the competition, even though this space since then has become a lot more crowded than it was when we launched. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. You know, how has the industry picked up? Obviously you, you mentioned quite a few trends and you know, a lot of people have come after you where you kind of led the way. Uh, into this relatively small but very critical and very important landscape. Yeah. Tell us, you know, what the competition looks like, how the sales have trended over the last five to seven years, and where are we going from here? Yeah. Um, so for us, um, we've seen a continuous growth in terms of adoption in schools. Uh, when we first started, um, we were bridging both consumer and education, which we continue to do today. But I would say the consumer side, which is parents buying it for their kids um, as a learning tool was the bigger part of our business. Um, and over the years, um, the adoption in schools have really taken off. Um, so, and we've continued to invest more in that side of our, of, of our business. 
Um, and I think what we've seen is uh, partly our success and what we've done has inspired others to, uh, to come into the space. Now, we've seen spa startups. There have been dozens of Kickstarter projects uh, who've tried to do something similar to what we've done from different parts of the world. Uh, some of these companies target our products target local markets like, you know, in different countries. Um, some of them are, you know, type, have tended to be more global. Some of these companies have since then also wound down, like not everyone has, has managed to sus, uh, sustain through uh, the last seven years. Uh, there have been very large companies um, like Starter that have grown very big. For example, companies like Anki mm -hmm. uh, that raised more than $200 million in robotics. They weren't directly focusing on coding and learning, but they were in the robotics space and they ended up shutting down uh, overnight. Um, and that's kind of the challenge of a very hardware, um, I would say, for kids space, um, given just the dynamics of the market. Uh, there are companies uh, in the space like Sphero and others who kind of grew on the consumer side and then having run into uh, trouble have started to focus more on the learning aspects as well. Mm -hmm. We've seen companies like Lego and Hasbro who are big giants in the toy space. They've brought out products that focusing on focus on kids learning to code some of these products have since then gone away uh, just because they, they didn't stand the test of time. And some of these have uh, stuck around. There are also software solutions. Uh, Apple launched something called Swift Playgrounds um, and Scratch from MIT has always been available as a free tool. So there are, there's a plethora of uh, solutions and tools that are available uh, uh, for parents and for teachers to use. Um, and one of the things that we've always focused on is making sure we meet the needs of the customer, which is specifically a child, a teacher, better than anyone else. Like we want to make sure that they succeed at a product with our product more than what anyone else could ever you know, do. And that's continued to be, I would say, the driving force for us. Uh, very recently, uh, this year, there's a, an independent study that came out from a University of Cologne in, in, in Germany where they uh, selected four of the best products. They took Dash Robots, Microbits, which has become, which kind of grew as a rage uh, all over the world, uh, Apple Swift Playgrounds from Apple and Lego, and then did a study with their teachers uh, to figure out which is the best tool. And they came out and recommended Dash as the best tool for teachers to use and the one that students engage with the most. That is awesome. And, you know, obviously Dot and Dash have traveled around the globe, they've been to, just not been to Antarctica yet, I think. So you need to work on that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but they've been to the White House, they've been highly recommended. Uh, you also mentioned Belinda Gates. Uh, yeah. They've got mentions from, from the biggest, the brightest and the best. Yeah. Where are they going next? <laughs> um, I think for us, the, um, well, first is, I think we are immensely grateful to teachers all over the world. Um, who have really taken a product and given it life in their classrooms. I think without those teachers, uh, there would be no Wonder Workshop. Uh, I think they are the true advocates and they are the ones we, uh, we live and we, 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 every work we do it is to empower them. Um, you're right, they've been, I mean, Dash and Dot have been to the White House. They've been, they've been in space, and believe it or not. And um, so it's, it's good to see those that happen. Um, I think for us as a company, the next step is um, to really figure out how we can have uh, help schools and school districts um, do one-to-one -one implementation in their schools, in their classrooms, in their school districts, and do it affordably. Um, so this year we launched a virtual robot. So essentially you can take all of our software, our apps, our content, our curriculum, 
and all the tools, and he can use them with a virtual robot right within the apps itself, uh, and then transition the same programs to use with the physical robot. Um, and that allows school districts to really adopt a solution that can meet the needs of all their children, whether they're at home and due to the pandemic, they're in a hybrid model, they're in person, and no matter what model they have, they can actually have every child have access to the right tools. Uh, and because we work with virtual robots, we can actually have the cost of implementation to be a lot lower than if they were trying to do a physical robot uh, with every child. Um, so that's been a big area of investment for us this year. Um, so that continues to be our focus on how do we help these school districts, um, especially in the US, um, implement one-to-one -one access to STEM and coding for all their students uh, and do it very affordably. Um, so that's the next part of the journey for us. Nice. And how the, you know, some of these competitions and you also had these in-person workshops, I'm guessing all of those have transitioned to virtual. Mm -hmm. What have been some of the learnings from that in terms of, you know, is that here to stay? Are you still looking at a mix of in-person and virtual? Tell us, tell us a little more about that. Yeah. Um, so I think some of it, I think some of the transition to what's happening in virtual world or virtual uh, remote learning or distance learning, I believe some of it is going to stay uh, in some form or the other. Uh, I think the best part I think that I would say has happened as a result of the pandemic is that um, now nearly every child in the US has access to a device in the school. I think until before the pandemic, when we would talk to schools and, and, and teachers, the, one of the biggest challenges was that they, the, not all students have access to a device, let alone have an access to a device one-to-one. -one. Yeah. And by devices, I mean Chromebooks and iPads and so on. And what has happened now is that because the schools had to take and you know, implement distance learning across the board, um, they've rolled out devices. So uh, nearly every student has a device. And what that does is makes the ground extremely fertile for adoption of uh, STEM coding, you know, all of those tools to be much easier because now you've solved one big part of the problem. You know, can a child program on a device? Yes, they can. And they can they do it from home? Yes, they can. We've solved that problem. Um, so I think that's, I would say, is the uh, biggest outcome I would see from the pandemic. Um, whether you want to do it in person or, or, or hybrid or you know, distance learning model, um, you will be able to equip a student with all the tools they need uh, to succeed at it. I do believe that for the younger kids, uh, you know, a model where they are learning in person, and we see this from research, um, you know, with ta tangible tools, especially concepts that are abstract like computer science, so those tangible tools are going to be critical. So I do believe that the mix of the, the implementation model would be one where they do part of it in a virtual way, but definitely transition to a physical uh, form in some form, but they can go back and forth um, because partly affordability is going to be continued to be uh, by one big factor as well. And there is also the element of the social fabric right, where the children yes. get together and learn from each other, share, and understand and maybe even fight a little bit. So that that aspect of it is, I would say, missing a little bit. Oh, you are so right, Nathan. I think um, what we don't realize often is that uh, you know children learn so much from their peers, from their you know fellow students. So when we host a robotics competition every year and we ask 
the party teams and the children what they learned the most. It is never ever uh, you know robotics or they learned you know about you know something in science or math. Invariably, the children would say they learned how to work with each other. They learned how to um, come together as a team and solve a problem. They learned perseverance. They learned never to give up. I remember one student mentioning that um, always bring food when you're working together because if without food, we all get cranky. So, so those are the learnings, right? So, and that really happens when kids come together in person and you can't really get that by everyone being remote uh, in the confined spaces. Right. Well, let me ask you an existential question. You've been at it for seven years now. Do you think your daughter, and of course now your son, are ready for the future? Um, well, <laughs> uh, I hope so, is <laughs> the first answer. Um, I think I'm hesitating largely because I myself don't know what the future entails, right? So um, I think I would say that you know, when I work with my kids or, you know, with our product work with other kids, um, more than just science and technology, I think one of the first skills that uh, we need to teach our kids is perseverance and, and grit. Uh, and this, it does, like, I think when you work on problems like these, mm -hmm. perseverance does come up, right? This is one of the critical uh, skills for kids to pick up. Uh, and I think uh, that along with, you know, some of the skills, whether it's around understanding computer science or coding and understanding technology, um, I do believe that if you give kids those, you know, call, call them soft skills and hard skills, um, yes, then I think we are equipping our kids uh, for future, no matter what the future holds, uh, because I don't, I can't predict what profession my kids are going to go take on, but I can predict that every profession is going to have some aspect of technology involved and they're going to be heavily dependent on technology. So the fact that they're growing up with um, kind of the sense of um, confidence around technology and sense of uh, uh, ability to solve problems using technology, I think there does give them uh, a leg up uh, no matter what they do. Yeah, and you know, that's something to look for. So continue doing yeah. what you're doing and you know, let me let me switch gears a little bit and ask you more about the entrepreneurial aspect of this. What keeps you up at night as an entrepreneur? Um, I think first thing I would say is over the last seven years, almost there's been different things at different times, but what's been consistent has been that I always been up. <laughs> <laughs> so it just matters, you know, what what keeps me up has changed. Uh, um, so I think uh, what I feel good about, you know, current times is that, um, you know, we've solved or, you know, we've, um, we've been becoming, we've become fairly good at a lot of the operational aspects of our business. Um, and I think what I would say keeps me up for most part uh, at the moment is um, as we, you know, power through the pandemic, because pandemic definitely, uh, you know, has affected our business, you know, we work with physical robots and physical computing. And that has uh, definitely uh, been affected because school budgets often get diverted to you know, the core subjects. Mm -hmm. So as we get, you know, as we power through the pandemic and you know, we're doing, uh, coming out of it looks like, you know, well, how do we then look for growth uh, as a company? Um, how do we engage back with our customers um, who've been distracted all this while? And how do we really, you know, the world post pandemic has changed. Um, as I mentioned, every child has a device now. Uh, distance learning is a bigger part of our everyday lives. A lot of parents are working from home. In that changed world, 
what do we need to do to stay relevant for our customers um, and stay ahead of whatever else anyone else might be doing and thinking about. So I would say that's what is the primary thought in my mind um, is to ensure that I can look ahead beyond the corners for my team. Uh, and as a company, as a product, we can continue to be relevant for our customers. You've led a, a pretty thoughtful life and you've taken for the most part, whatever is more important and given it the due recognition and time it needs. What advice would you give your 20 year old self? I think when I think back to what I was at 20 years, I would when I was 20 years old, um, I would say I would think I was a little brash. Um, and um, I think I would go back and tell my 20 year old self um, that sometimes being kind <laughs> is better than, uh, not sometimes, always being kind is more important and better than being right. Uh, and I think uh, invest in people around you, be curious about people around you. Everyone has a story to tell. Everyone has something to teach you. Um, and I think you learn that over time. Uh, and looking back, you, you feel that you, uh, you wish you had actually uh, spent more time learning about the people around you because you, know, you missed out on those opportunities. Uh, and I think I would, that probably would have made me a lot more richer personally in the sense of you know, the, what I would have learned over the years. Um, and that's probably one thing that I would definitely go back and tell my 20 year old self. One of my mentors, who I call a mentor, says, be interested instead of being interesting. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Words of wisdom. Yes. For, uh, yeah, but I think that's the thing, right? Wisdom only comes with gray hair and, <laughs> and, and old age. You wish you could pass this wisdom on to your younger self. You don't have any gray hair, but you have the wisdom. <laughs> I have the gray hair, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me something you regret not doing and then something you regret doing. Um, I, I have thought about this question. I think um, I honestly don't have regrets uh, and I don't want to sound it in a um, kind of being coy about it. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you why um, I feel that way. Um, there was a moment in time when I was in grad school um, where I had a brush with a near-death incident. Hmm. And uh, I was in a river rafting, I was doing river rafting and uh, I was studying at Georgia Tech and Atlanta and we had gone for a river rafting trip. And I survived through a, you know, I fell off the boat in a class five, class six rapid and hmm. uh, managed to come out and that everyone else around had me given up. They had assumed that I will die. I will not come out of it, but I, I was fortunate, very lucky to, to make it. And I think that moment changed something in me uh, because you know you suddenly look at your life as uh, as in a very different lens. And uh, um, so one of the things that I've done, tried to do ever since then, is to make decisions and choices, thinking in terms of um, that if I was to look back at my life, you know, a few years later, mm -hmm. um, I do not want to look at it with regret that I did not make the choice that I could have made at that time. Mm -hmm. For example, right after that accident, uh, I had a choice of two summer internships. One was to work with a, for a firm in the US and do a regular job. The other was to work in Paris or in France and you know, spend the summer uh, in South of France and working for over there. And I jumped at the opportunity to go mm -hmm. South of France and travel and had never traveled before that and, mm -hmm. and so on. So 
but there are many more such choices that I've presented to myself. And I always remind myself uh, of that time and always make, try to make a choice where I know that, you know, uh, looking back, I would not regret making that choice because this was the one that I feel would enrich me the most. Mm. Um, I mean, I think the only thing I would say that I wish uh, somewhere along the ways uh, that I could do have done more, as I mentioned earlier, was if, as my younger self, if I, I think I wish I had built more relationships, I was, as you mentioned, I was more interested than being trying to being interesting. Then I think I would have been learned from people around me a lot more as I was growing up uh, than I think I uh, I did really. That's you know I, I'm just kind of thinking about that that incident and it can be pretty life changing. Mm -hmm. um, I personally am. I love water, but that's the one thing I'm scared of. So you said that, you know, that experience kind of, it scares me and to have to live through that experience um, it can be quite, quite nerve yeah. Good thing was that it was 20 years ago now. <laughs> I have it locked away in my memory somewhere. But you remember the essential part of it, that, you know. Yes. The decision-making ability and, and not having regrets it's so important. Right? Worst, worst thing is, you know, we can be wrong about yeah. something, but it felt right in the moment and we did it anyways. So, uh, yeah, and I think one of the things that I've also learned along the ways is that, you know, sometimes the, the choices that look hard at the moment, um, and, you know, you should never make a decision because they look hard. Like, you should not shy away from a choice because it looks hard right now. Yeah. Uh, and I think I, that's one thing I've learned is, you know, even at Wonder Workshop, there were so many choices along the way that we had to make that at the moment, you know, going down that path felt hard because it's part, sometimes because of the unknown. Sometimes we knew that you had to go have a hard conversation with an investor, with uh, a partner, with a customer. But if you did not do that, it'll come back and bite you many fold otherwise. Um, and that's something that I've tried to kind of you know, both communicate to my team and, you know, both my kids as well. Sometimes that's, um, you know, it's, it's important to make the right choice, even if it looks hard. Okay. Okay. Makes me think, what fictional character do you most relate to? Um, so I asked my wife this question, um, <laughs> you know, with, you know, because I, I had a hard time imagining, you know, what, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to also come, you know, start imagining myself of all the fictional characters I love. So I think both of us agreed that, you know, um, given what I, given my sense of adventure and, and I, I love, now I love traveling and I love the sense of adventure. I, I, I love pushing myself out of the comfort zone. And I also coupled with that, I like to see things through and just have this streak in me where I just won't give up no matter how tough things get. Um, both of us felt that, you know, the character uh, I probably relate to most is a character called Tintin. Um, if you don't, if, if downloads of your audience, how many know people know Tintin? It's this comic book character from Belgium. Um, uh, and and he's, a, he's a teenage journalist. So, you know, so, you know, read what you will. I, I see myself as a teenager. Uh, but he goes on these adventures and, you know, uh, solves the problems and, and never gives up. So I would say Tintin is who I... I felt I relate to the most. And I agree with that. And, you know, that's, I'm not a reader, I, but that's one book, one series that I've read end to end. Uh, and I feel close to that character because my name kind of resonates with it in a bit. Yeah. I'm a little biased. 
<laughs> True. So yeah, okay. I I agree with the, both your choices. <laughs> uh, you know, Tintin is also adventurous, but also very curious. So what are you curious about? Um, many things, I think, at any time. I think uh, I was, especially with my kids, I've been very curious about their learning process, like what they learn, how how they learn. Um, and I kind of read with them. I, you know, uh, so, uh, so that how their brains are developing and how they are learning and what new challenge are they ready for and how can I help them? That's a big part of what every day I'm, I, I feel curious about. And as a part of that, I've ended up becoming a big part of their, you know, especially math learning as, as they've grown up. Mm -hmm. um, I've also been very enamored by storytelling um, with recently, which is, I'm in, so for example, my daughter started reading a, a lot of books around Greek characters and Greek mm -hmm. literature. And that got me a lot of curious because we started seeing references to those stories and those characters everywhere in all different stories. So, I, you know, of late I've been curious about, um, you know, how, what are the original stories? Like where do, you know, how did storytelling really manifest itself and where do parallels get drawn? So, you know, recently, for example, I picked up a book by uh, Stephen Fry, who is a comedian and, and an actor, and, and his book, written this book called Mythos on, on uh, Greek characters and stories. Um, so those, those are the things I'm, I'm curious about these days, personally, uh, you know, trying to learn more, uh, both of the learning process and the storytelling. And, and that's a deep, uh, I would say, journey, but a really interesting one. I hope so. I'm just starting on that one. Yeah, I'd love to lean off of you and learn from what you're learning. <laughs> Tell us, uh, you know, you, you mentioned books. I also want to add a podcast to it. Do you have a couple of uh, favorites on in each of those? Um, honestly, I'm not a big podcast listener, so I don't have a lot to share, but I can share one podcast that you know, we as a family listen to. Yeah. Uh, so this is a radio show called Classics for Kids. Uh, this was hosted, it is hosted by a woman called Naomi Lewin. Mm -hmm. uh, it started as a radio show in Cincinnati uh, and uh, she turned it into a podcast that's available online um, and she does an, an amazing job with telling stories again and stories about music and she'll pick up these characters of these uh, in history of music and will introduce to their music and tell stories about how their life was and what inspired one and just the interweaving of stories with music is just fascinating. We've listened to the same episodes multiple times over uh, from her. So that's, I would say, is one of our uh, favorite podcasts as a family. Nice. What about books? Um, so books, I would say, uh, in you know, a fiction book that I really, really loved, and uh, always I, I, I have often thought back to it, is a book by Haruki Murakami. Mm. Uh, it's called 1Q84. Um, and I remember after having read the book, I, I felt the book was haunting me for for weeks or days, like it's, um, it was a fascinating uh, book. Um, and I think in nonfiction, the book that I, every time I hire a new person, I always make sure I give him this book, him or her this book, uh, is a book called High Output Management by Andrew Grove. Um, and I felt like as a CEO, as a leader, that's probably is the book that I have learned the most from. Uh, and I end up often, you know, going back and reading the book uh, every so often as well. Yeah, that's a good book. Any movies or TV series that 
you know, that is a favorite that you keep going back and learning from. I've, I've found, you know, there's, there's a couple yeah. that I keep going back to and they have grown with me or I have kind of caught up to them, yeah. uh, so to speak. So any that you have? Um, so I'm a big movie um, freak, if you will. I mean, I've, and I've watched, you know, I love watching movies and, and drawing inspiration from so many of them. Uh, the one movie that I would share um, is a 1952 movie by Akira Kurosawa, the Japanese director. Yeah. The movie is called Ikiru. Mm -hmm. um, so I saw the movie, I think this was soon after my whitewater rafting incident. In fact, like a couple of years after that, I think I, I was working in Seattle at Amazon. Um, and this movie is about this old man who discovers that he's about to die. He has six months to live. And he realizes that he hasn't done much with his life. He's lived his life, but he hasn't truly lived. And he goes on a quest to figure out what it is to truly live. Uh, and it you know, very quickly figures out that the best life would be one that makes the world a better place for people around him. Like he has to have an impact on the world. And he takes on this mission to build a park for this, you know, families. And he takes on the Japanese mobsters, Yakuza's to, you know, and, and, and delivers them that park. And then there's this moment at the end before he dies, he's sitting in the park in a swing and singing a song while the snow's falling on him. And I would say that movie has had an everlasting impact on me. Like even just a few weeks ago, I sat down with some friends and had them watch the movie. Nice. Uh, and I, you know, was discussing with them and I was, and I, that's, I've, every so often I'll go back and watch the movie and, and it never fails to have uh, the same impact on me again. Um, and I think it's like, as I've shared with you over this, you know, this call, uh, you know, those moments that I have had an impact on me and me trying to figure out how should I truly live my life? You know, what is a life that I live? And I would feel if I was to die tomorrow, I would at least die with not a regret that I did not live my life uh, to the extent I wanted to live my life. Yeah. And with a sense of purpose. Yeah, with a sense of purpose, yeah. yeah. Because this, is, this has been an excellent discussion. I really enjoyed sharing your journey and learning from it, you know, personally as a parent, as someone who has been curious about my own children, our children's journey and you know caring and thinking about their future there is there is a lot to look forward to and thank you for doing what you've done as a as a fellow parent uh, really appreciate the the effort the energy that you have put behind this and you have truly made an impact on on this community so thank you for doing what you've done oh thank you so much for the kind words nathan i really enjoyed talking uh, with you and uh, and looking forward to catching up again likewise thank you so much Hey, bye-bye.